when the dose of oxytocin reaches 20 milliunits per minute, the physician shall be notified to evaluate the fetal tracing and contraction pattern, and an IUPC shall be placed prior to any further increases in oxytocin. The maximal dose of oxytocin should not exceed 30 milliunits per minute. That is the text that's directly out of our labor and delivery oxytocin protocol. The maximum dose of oxytocin should not exceed 30 milliunits per minute. I get it. It's all in the line of patient safety. But remember in a previous podcast, we said that being too cavalier and too liberal and too cowboy in your medicine is not safe. But then we also said being too conservative is also not a good idea either. So in this podcast, we're going to tackle this issue of the maximal dose rate of oxytocin. I mean, is there one? And is that even evidence-based? There's a new publication that's soon to come out in the Green Journal that's out of authors from Northwestern that answered this question. By the way, this answer is nothing new. We've already knew, known this for some time, but we must have forgotten. So in this episode, we're going to cover the maximal dose rate of intrapartum oxytocin infusion and associated obstetric and perinatal outcomes. I mean, is it okay to go beyond 30 milliunits per minute? Or should we stick to the more conservative level of 20 that most hospitals kind of stick to, even though there's no evidence? We're going to get to it right now. Let's cover the maximal dose rate of intrapartum oxytocin infusion and its associated obstetric and perinatal outcomes. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, let's just think about this for a minute. The most common medication by far used in labor and delivery is synthetic oxytocin, Pitocin. However, there's no maximal dose rate that's uniform across hospitals. I think that's kind of weird. I mean, ACOG does support the use of both low-dose and high-dose regimens to induce or augment labor, but it stays away from mentioning any specific maximal dose rate. Very smart on ACOG's part. (laughs) But many hospitals, of course, have protocols that do impose a maximal dose rate of oxytocin infusion, and it's always done, again, with the thought of patient safety. But is there evidence for that? empirical evidence to support these associations of maximal dose rates on any kind of adverse outcome is just actually not there. It's lacking. But more information is coming, and this is coming out to print soon in the Green Journal. The lead author of the publication that we're reviewing today is Sun, and it's coming out of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Green Journal. Before we get into this new data, let's just compare the low-dose and the high-dose protocol from two traditional hospitals, all right? Now, these have published their PIT protocols for years and been the model for a lot of different hospitals. So we're talking about UAB, University of Alabama, Birmingham, and of course, Parkland, my alma mater. The traditional Parkland PIT protocol called for starting at 6 milliunits per minute and then increased every 40 minutes by 6 milliunits per minute. The maximal dose was anywhere from 36 to 48 milliunits per minute. UAB's hospital protocol starts at 2 milliunits per minute and then increases as needed every 15 minutes to 4 milliunits per minute, 8, 12, 16, up to 30 milliunits per minute. All right, so we've got two different maximums right there. We've got 30 milliunits per minute from UAB and then up to 48 milliunits per minute at Parkland. 
Now, here's the catch. Remember I've said many times before, there's nothing new under the sun. And even though this new publication is very welcome because it gives great information, we've kind of already known this. The maximal effective dose of oxytocin to achieve contractions is different for all women. When et al. published in 2001, that consecutive nulliparitis evaluated with different PIT protocols found that the likelihood of progression to vaginal delivery decreased when the maximal Pitocin infusion rate was at or beyond 36 milliunits per minute. All right. Now, remember, we're talking about chance of progression, not adverse issues, you know, not fetal harm or maternal jeopardy. They just said, hey, if you get to 36, the likelihood that you're going to deliver after that starts going down. However, here's the catch. Half, still half of those nulliparas were delivered vaginally when the dose rate went up to 72 milliunits per minute. Now, I think we need to say that again because that freaks out a lot of people at 72 milliunits per minute. But we're going to discuss that in just a little bit, okay? Again, according to this study, at a dose of 72 milliunits per minute, half of the nulliparas in that study still delivered vaginally. So, the authors concluded that if contractions were not adequate, in other words, there were less than 200 montefiol units per minute, and the fetal status was still reassuring, that the oxidosin infusion could be safely increased beyond 48 milliunits per minute and, quote, has no apparent risks, end quote. Now, let's bring this question here to discussion, and we're going to talk about this a little bit further on the podcast. You see, there's two thoughts about the higher Pitocin levels, right? The first is if you go so high that you're going to downregulate Pitocin receptors and then you're going to get uterine inertia. In other words, the high PIT levels causes the, the labor to stall. All right, so that's where Pitocin is the causer, the, the insider of labor dystocia because you've actually just saturated your receptors and caused it to no longer take the message. But the reverse could also be true, which is the reason you have to increase Pitocin is because the Pitocin receptors are just not functional to begin with. So it's not that Pitocin caused the receptor problem, it's that the receptors have a problem inherently causing you to increase PIT. You see that? So it's which came first, the chicken or the egg, and there's no answer for that. Is it possible that higher Pitocin levels saturate receptors and then you get an altered contraction pattern? Absolutely. But is it also possible that you have to increase PIT beyond a certain cutoff value that's arbitrary because the PIT receptors are just not working or there's other factors involved like her genetics or uh, BMI issues, which we know the uterus is less responsive with higher BMI to Pitocin. Is it the receptor that's causing the higher increase? And the answer is yes. They're both possibly at play here, but there's no way to figure out which one is more causative than the other. All to say, before we get to this new publication coming out, we've already had data that there's not necessarily a cutoff beyond which you just cannot go past. Because again, historically, even 72 milliunits per minute was considered effective with half of the nulliparas in that study delivering vaginally with no apparent risk. Isn't that interesting? Now, in this new publication, it does cover the rate of C-sections based on maximal infusion rates. We're going to get to that, okay? Because if the thought is if higher doses leads to you know more uterine inertia, then you would figure then there'd be a higher rate of C-section for arrest of dilation. And guess what? That's exactly what they found. However, when the overall number of C-sections was looked at based on a high infusion rate versus a more uh, reserved or traditional infusion rate, 
the number of C-sections was not statistically different. Okay, so the the percentage of C-sections in those that had a maximal rate of infusion more than 20 millionits per minute, yes, it was a higher rate of C-section. However, the overall C-section pool was not different based on the rate of Pitocin infusion. We're going to get to all that in just a minute. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Remember the number 20, 20 millionits per minute. That's the cutoff that the authors use to determine these two different comparison groups, all right? Those who had a maximal Pitocin dose infusion rate up to 20 millionits per minute or those who had it greater than 20 millionits per minute. So again, these authors aim to test whether the commonly used maximal dose rate threshold of 20 millionits per minute is actually associated with increased maternal and perinatal morbidity or not. Secondarily, they wanted to investigate whether there was a dose rate response relationship between the maximal dose rate of PIT and the mode of delivery and any perinatal outcome. Now, this was not a primary study. This was a secondary analysis of another RCT. In other words, they published one data, and then they went back and took a look at this based on the maximal infusion rate. And this came out of Northwestern. That original study compared women who received the high-dose Pitocin protocol, which was 6 millionits per minute, compared with a standard-dose regimen, which was 2 millionits per minute. Then, as a secondary analysis, then they compared the maximal infusion rates per minute to see if there was any change in delivery rates or maternal or neonatal adverse events. Now, let's put this into proper perspective. This is for nulliparous women only, all right? No MOTIPs. Because the first moment you start putting MOTIPs in there, then you got to take into factors like, well, what was the uh, interpregnancy interval? How many pregnancies have they had before? Were they grand MOTIPs? And that's another variable that's hard to control. So these are all nulligravidas, and they had to be 36 weeks or more. And here's the take home this was not for induction. Okay, all of these had some form of cervical dilation, so these were all considered augmentation, all right? So they started some form of labor, so they were either dilated, uh, they had ruptured membranes, but they were not being induced, they were being augmented, all right? I just want to put that clear. This is nulligravidus, 36 weeks or more, undergoing Pitocin augmentation, not induction. In that original study, the maximal interpartum dose rate was not specified in the study protocol, so it left it to the individual providers. Obstetric outcomes included cesarean section, peripartum infection, including intrapartum clinical choreo and postpartum endometritis, and postpartum hemorrhage. Now, here's one of the catches here. They defined postpartum hemorrhage as 500 mLs for vaginal delivery 
and greater than 1,000 mLs for C-section. In other words, they went back and used the traditional nomenclature for PPH that we no longer use according to the Revitalize program, all right? So remember, that's the, the one catch that we don't clinically use anymore. PPH is now, irregardless of mode of delivery, and up to the first 24 hours of 1,000 mLs or more. But just as that clarification, they did use 500 and 1,000 based on vaginal or C-section, which was the old, you know, nomenclature. Okay, those were the adverse issues for mom, but what about for the child? Perinatal outcomes that were checked included admission to the NICU and a composite outcome of neonatal morbidity or mortality. From September 2015 through September of 2020, so for that five-year interval, just over 1,000 participants were randomized to this trial. Now, here's what's interesting. Remember, there was no maximum values put into the protocol. But human nature being what it is, only 19.9%, so let's call it 20%, were given a maximum intrapartum oxytocin rate that was greater than 20 millionits per minute. Yeah, 80% were exposed to the maximal oxytocin infusion rate of 20 millionits per minute or less. So only 20% dared go over 20 millionits per minute. Isn't that interesting? We're so ingrained, don't go over a certain value, even though there's no real data. All right, so 80% had the traditional up to 20, uh, and then 20% had an infusion rate that went over 20 millionits per minute. Now, you would think those that have higher dose Pitocin are going to be exposed to Pitocin for less time, right? I mean, they're, you're just banging that uterus out, <laughs> so that child's going to deliver quicker. And some studies have shown that, but not in this one. So I thought this was interesting because the duration of oxytocin infusion, overall minutes, compared between those who had more than 20 millionits per minute or less than 20 millionits per minute was statistically significant. In the higher Pitocin infusion rate, the average was 768-minute exposure, while those that were exposed to 20 millionists per minute or less had an average duration of Pitocin exposure that was almost half that at 389, all right? So 768 minutes for the higher dose compared to 389 for the standard dose up to 20 millionists per minute. You see, so that kind of brings back our discussion, right? I mean, that they need higher Pitocin for a longer time because something's kind of jacked with that uterus. Y'all get that, right? Now, there's no way to figure that out. I mean, do you need more pit because you're oversaturating it, so you've got to overcompensate, or you're not overcompensating, you're just trying to work through kind of non-functional receptors that already exist. So which one came first? And there's no way to really figure that out. But in this study, those that had the higher infusion rate did have almost double the length of time of Pitocin infusion. All right, now let's get into this whole issue of C-sections, okay? Because this is interesting. Yes, those that had a maximal infusion rate of PIT greater than 20 millionists per minute were more likely to have a cesarean section specifically for failure to dilate, arrest of dilation, all right? However, when you group all C-sections together for a variety of reasons, here it is, quote, there was no association between oxidosin dose of more than 20 millionists per minute and cesarean delivery, end quote. In other words, the odds ratio was 1.57, and it, the confidence interval crossed one. In other words, yeah, the numbers look like they're off, but overall, when you kind of do the math, there's no statistical difference. But let's stick here with C-section for arrest of dilation, all right? For those that had an infusion rate more than 20 millionits per minute, the arrest of dilation indication or diagnosis happened 54% of the C-sections. However, for those that had 20 millionits per minute or less, the amount of C-sections that were done for arrest of dilation 
was only 27%. So more had arrested dilation with a higher dose of Pitocin per minute, which again brings to that question, are we supersaturating the receptors and then they get stuck or they're just get higher dose of PIT because there's something wrong internally with those uh, messaging units of those receptors. So which came first? And there's no way to figure that out. The take-home message is, in this study, those that had higher rates of infusion, more than 20 milliliters per minute, did have, for, for a rest of dilation, a higher percentage of C-section at 54% compared to 27%. But overall, the total group of C-sections between the two was not statistically different. I think we're making it more complicated than it is. And the short answer is you may be needing to go up on Pitocin because something is wrong with that uterus response, which already puts you at risk of a C-section. Although it is possible that if you just supersaturate the receptors, you're going to end up with dystocia as well. So it is a circular argument. The take-home message is overall per group of C-section for any indication, which includes non-reassuring fetal heart rate, maternal request, uh, arrest of descent, everything else, there's no statistical difference. And speaking for non-reassuring fetal status, listen to this little tidbit. And, and this is weird. I mean, you would think that if we're giving higher dose PIT, we're going to do more C-sections for non-reassuring fetal status, right? Makes sense. That's not what was found. The percent of C-sections for non-reassuring fetal status was 36% rate of C-section in the 20 units per minute or less, and it was 12% for those that had the higher dose Pitocin. So again, when you match these up together, that's why there's no statistical difference in the two groups of C-section. More women had a rest of dilation C-section in the high dose Pitocin protocol, but the amount of C-section for non-reassuring fetal status was actually in the lower maximal infusion rate protocol. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. All right, fine. But what about the perinatal outcomes? Remember, that was NICU admissions or severe morbidity based on composite score. Well, the short answer is there was no difference there either. So as the authors concluded, quote, there was no significant difference in maternal or perinatal outcome between participants who were exposed to a maximal oxytocin dose rate of more than 20 milliunits per minute compared with the rates of 20 milliunits per minute. Now, before we get to the end of the podcast, where we're going to give a clinical recommendation, we're going to give something that we can actually put into practice, so you don't want to miss that. But look at the wide variation of the maximal Pitocin infusion rates that happened in this study. Because there was no maximal amount that was written on the document that was written as you cannot cross this value, the infusion rates per minute varied from 1.5 milliunits per minute. Yeah, 1.5. I mean, at that point, just do nipple stim. Uh, don't do that. That's just a joke. Or up to a maximum of 80 milliunits per minute. Do you all see that? Wow. So when you don't tell and you don't put it on paper, uh, and that's one of the problems with not putting it on paper, is that you get these various practice techniques from 1.5 milliunits per minute to 80 milliunits per minute. And that is something to consider. I mean, if you don't put any kind of guideline, you're going to be all over the place. 
But is it harmful to be all over the place? It, it, it doesn't seem to be so because it didn't have, remember, any significant adverse maternal or perinatal outcomes between these two different comparison groups. Now that we're at the end, let me give you the clinical implication here, all right? Now, you have to follow your labor and delivery protocol. Please don't go rogue because I don't want anybody to get in trouble. If you have a maximal infusion rate, follow that. I mean, be a team player. But next time that the Pitocin protocol is being revised, maybe something to consider. And remember, this is not new data. Remember that study we talked about earlier in the podcast by Wen et al. back in 2001, that even those who had up to 72 million units per minute still delivered vaginally, half of those delivered vaginally, with no increase in adverse issues. But just to consider that it, putting a maximum restraint, right, putting the brakes on a certain milliunits per minute may not be evidence-based. Here's what the authors concluded. Quote, this secondary analysis of a double-blind randomized controlled trial of high-dose oxytocin and standard-dose oxytocin regimens found that the majority of nulliparous patients who were exposed to maximal infusion rates that exceeded 20 milliunits per minute during labor augmentation delivered vaginally, and here it is, guys, there was no significant difference in obstetric and perinatal outcomes compared with those who used lower doses after adjusting for potential confounders. The authors end with the main take-home message for all of us. Quote, Synthetic oxytocin needs vary widely among laboring patients, and oxytocin should be dosed and titrated according to the oxytocin response of each individual, primarily based on their contraction and fetal heart rate pattern, rather than an arbitrary and non-evidence-based threshold. End quote. Ooh, pretty powerful words. All right, podcast family, remember, don't go rogue in your labor and delivery unit. Don't do that. If you have a maximum amount spelled out on your unit, stick to the rules. Those are the rules of your land, and you've got to be a team player. But the next time you go to pit committee or the policies being revised, just something to consider. Not having a maximal dose spelled out makes people nervous. I get that. And there's real things like the potential for water intoxication. But if you stick with something like normal saline or LR, that probability is much less as long as you measure urine output. And high-dose PID is something we don't have to be afraid of, either by incremental amounts per interval or with maximal infusion rates. Anyway, this data, it's very helpful clinically, and so I'm very thankful for Sun et al. who published this, and it's coming on the Green Journal soon. The title, again, is Maximum Dose Rate of Interpartum Oxytocin Infusion and Associated Obstetric and Perinatal Outcomes, coming out soon in the Green Journal. All right, podcast family, we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls.